Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. This is part two of our discussion on bike fit. And to remind everybody, episode 187, the first part, was much more about bike fit philosophy, a bit about technology, a bit about changing perceptions um, and some misconceptions of what bike fit used to be as compared to what it is now, informed by data, informed by a greater understanding of uh, human anatomy and physiology, honestly. Trevor, we heard from Todd, Colby, and Dr. Andy Pruitt in that episode, and they each gave a philosophy, if you will, uh, to set the stage. Maybe we should listen to those right now to get a sense of the three philosophies of these great minds in BikeFit. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, they There are differences in their philosophy, but certainly in that first episode, we saw their minor difference. There's a lot they share. And I think even when we hear just the summary of their approach, you're, you're going to hear a lot of commonalities. Well, you're also going to see hear some of the distinctness of, of each of these experts. And, and I agree with you. I think this is going to help inform the discussion you're about to hear in this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Steven Siler. I got to tell you, it's a thrill for me to have the opportunity to go in and see a whole collection of my lectures and webinars all in one place, free of charge for the members of Fast Talk and the broader sports science world. And not only me, but other sports scientists have collected their work and Fast Talk Laboratories is presenting it for all of you to use and learn from every day. Let's start with Dr. Pruitt, who has a pretty quick, short summary that I kind of liked. My one-liner, I think it's well-known in the industry, is that I think the bike needs to look like the rider. But you got to give that a little deeper thought. And I think that if I think about my first early bike fits, they were done in the athletic training room at the University of Colorado. So my mindset at the time was solving injury problems, right? So if I watched a football game and I saw the guy get hit, I knew what ligament he tore before he hit the ground and I was on my way to him. So that's really how I studied sport. So when sore knees, um, et cetera, started to show up in my training room, I attacked that sore knee in the same way. I tried to watch them ride and figure out how they got hit, right? What caused that knee to hurt? Was it the bike's fault or was it their fault? So to make the bike look like the person, you really have to think about the brain, central nervous system really coordinates this whole thing. It's this, it's the respiratory system, it's the cardio, cardio uh, respiratory system, and the neuromuscular systems that all are coordinated, right? So bike fit really is a place where your respiratory system can work efficiently and your neuromuscular system can work without compromise. And compromise usually leads to either malperformance or injury. So that's how the bike ends up looking like the rider. All right. And here's Colby Pierce. Uh, if you've ever listened to him on our program or on his own podcast, Cycling in Alignment, he takes a much more holistic approach to everything. And that is reflected in his description of his bike philosophy. Let's, let's hear that now. For me, 
Bike fit is about, it's about balancing a couple of different tensions, we'll say. On the one side of the spectrum, we have the physiology of the rider, how they present to you at that moment. Do they have an injury history? Do they have um, postural tendencies? Do they have habits on the bike? How is their posture on the bike? How is their posture off the bike? What are their muscle tension relationships? What is their mobility? What is their strength? Have they been training in other mobilities? What, what is their sports history? Do they come from Greco-Roman wrestling or American football? Pretty unusual. Most of the time, cyclists didn't go down that pathway first or tried it very early and discovered they weren't in that channel. Ended up in cycling instead. So you have to consider all that. And then on the other side of the equation, we have what are the demands of their event? Are they training for a Grand Fondo? Are they just trying to be more fit? Are they training to win the Colorado, Colorado State Time Trial Championships? All very different demands. So you have to kind of put those two in a pile, and a lot of times they can be sort of opposed to each other, diametrically opposed. So you have to evaluate where is the rider now and where are they trying to go. And then the bike is kind of in the middle. And so we have to blend those things together and come up with an outcome. Finally, here's Todd Carver, who really focused in on the actual rider himself, though I think both Colby and Dr. Pruitt would agree with everything he's saying. I think in a nutshell, it's less about me and more about the rider. So I think the most important part of the fit is the interview and really figuring out why someone's in there. Because I think all too often you can get caught in your own world of how you want someone to ride a bike, how you ride a bike, what your preconceived notions are of what's good, what's bad. But the riders coming in your door have totally different goals. They want to solve usually one or two problems. So really doing a good interview, sticking to the goals that the rider has in the session and addressing those. Um, and if there's something beyond that to improve, um, let's make an attempt. But at the other hand, don't force my thoughts of how I want to ride on other riders. Just try to help them. Mm -hmm. Very good. So in that first episode, we really talked about how the 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 industry, the bike fit industry, has changed quite radically in the last thirty years. Um, in part two today, we want to talk about some of those practical implications of bike fit. Get into uh, discussion about things like uh, aerodynamics versus power, how to actually find a good bike fitter, um, and some of the other practical considerations of bike fit, uh, a, an extremely important tool that uh, I think all three of these great minds in bike fit would argue everybody needs. All right, so we were going to go to that medical versus performance fit discussion. Let's go to it now. Andy, Let's start with you. You you were about to chime in before I interrupted well, you. Well, I again, you know, 1985, I started using three dimensional motion capture to uh, analyze bike fit, and we actually then established a a medical office visit procedure using the 3D. Uh, so yeah, I had people fly them all over because it was so new, mm -hmm. right? and we could see so many more things that we maybe couldn't have seen before. So. Medical fit to me is they have they they have a known problem back pain knee pain unilateral saddle sores whatever that is and your goal of that bike fit is to solve that problem that is number one and when Todd and I worked together my goal in the fit was to solve their knee pain Todd looked at them from a more global right a more global um, 
aspect. But if I was working alone, then I had to do both those. I had to solve their knee pain and look at them from a global aspect. Most of the time, when you make somebody better medically or more comfortable, you've also improved their performance. You've got you've, you've moved toward homeostasis. You've moved toward that balance. And um, so I think they're hand in hand. I think most fits start out medical. They came to you with a complaint, whether it's in a doctor's office or in a, a retail setting. Most bike fits start out as a medical fit because they came with a problem that they want you to solve. And we're all going to solve it in a slightly different way. But having heard all three philosophies, I think we're all singing the same song. Yeah. Basically. Well, I, I think that from my perspective, people out there that don't know too much about the nuances here might hear the word medical and they think it's a quite a large issue we're talking about, like some kind of injury that they've sustained in their life or something like that. But but what you're saying is anything from a knee pain to saddle sores is considered in that medical realm. Absolutely. Okay. So and then the other piece to remember is it's – so if the staff of physical therapist is doing this fit, and there's many qualified – good fitters. Just just because you're a physical therapist does not make you a good bike fitter. I want to get that really clear. Mm -hmm. But there are some really good physical therapists that are also good bike fitters. Um, Many times the therapists at at the Sports Medicine Center, I say, we're going to do this fit today because this is the right thing for him today. Does he need glute med strengthening? Yes. Give him to the physical therapist. So they leave, they meet the the physical therapist. This This is what we found the therapist is going to, we, we changed your bike today to support this issue. They're going to go get their physical therapy or their injections or whatever the medical treatment of it is. And then you would revisit that bike fit. My glute strength is perfect now. Do I still need that wedge? I don't know. Let's take a look, right? So the, the, the two things can work hand in hand. And I hope that most good fitters out there, wherever they are in the world, have a relationship with a physio or a chiro or an orthopedist or somebody that can help support the medical side of things, especially if they're in a retail setting and don't have any other support. So, Chris, give you an example. So, you know, I have a bad back. I've had a bad back for a long time. I used to be in a pretty aggressive position on my bike, but that was a real strain on, on my back. So as I've gotten older, uh, Dr. Pruitt has, has put me in a less aggressive position. I sit a little more upright than a lot of other cyclists. But that's for longevity. I just can't sit in that more aggressive position that I used to be able to hold and think I'm going to be able to do another 10, 20 years on the bike. Yeah, uh, I I know the difference. I just think I was just clarifying, really. I think some people hear the word medical and they think, oh, that's that's not for me. But it's regardless. It's it's irrelevant, I would I guess you would say. because I would also add on a little bit. There's There's injured riders that ride bikes and there's – uh, riders that ride bikes that get injured, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And that's a little different is when you have, the, especially me as a non-medical fitter, you know, I've learned as much as I can, but at the end of the day, I within my scope of practice, when I get a, an injured rider in that has some disc fusion somewhere, mm-hmm. it's like I really need to be conscious to get a referral and really get some more help with that because that that is where that medical advice can be really important for the fit. On the other hand, you get someone in who's like, I don't have any problems other than when I ride. Yeah. Right. And then I get this saddle sore right here. It's like I feel like it's within a non-medical fitter scope of practice sure. to figure that stuff out. Absolutely. That's you a know? good line to draw. Yeah. yeah that's right. Absolutely. If if the bike is the problem, right, right. You should be able to fix that. Yeah. 
yeah. if they brought the problem to the bike, that's, right. that can yeah. be that, you And that comes down to your help. interview. You have to be discerning yeah, and figure out, well, what is the origin of the pain? You know, does it yeah. only happen when you ride or do you get it when you walk up down the stairs, when you go skiing, when you hike? Right. Colby, how do you use um, your medical community? I mean, I know you yeah. used to have the physical therapist upstairs. You're not in that facility anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I moved to a different office now. So that's a great question. I mean, you know, as a coach, as coaches and fitters, you know, depending on who's listening and what you, what's in your wheelhouse, like we all have to have that real clear boundary to know yep. when to refer out, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really tempting to go on Google and be like, oh, spinal fusion. What does this mean, <laughs> right? And Man, I mean that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. We do it. We all but, do it because yeah. you want to learn more. Yeah. Like I'm always devouring information. You know, as much every minute that I can, pretty much. I mean, I'm listening to podcasts while I'm doing dishes, pretty frequently, yeah. just trying to absorb things from other people. But it's a ball of fun. It's a ball of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll refer out. You know, if someone brings me blood work. Someone yep. comes to me with a problem. I have a mentor that I work with at the Czech Institute that I consult for complex cases yep. like. Um, you know, spondylolisthesis or, yeah. Oh, yeah. right. It, it's like, and I'm learning about this stuff, but I also try, it, it's consciously knowing your own sort of knowledge horizon and being very acute of that limit and saying, okay, this is what I know. And also having an open channel communication with your client, like, okay, I know a little bit about this and this is what I see, but I think we need an expert here. One area I try to refer people out to pretty regularly. There's this interesting cross section where you get a rider who comes in and Sometimes they're new to the sport, relatively new to the sport, you know, cycling age of, you know, one or two years, maybe three years. And you can see that they just don't have that suppleness. Mm -hmm. They don't have that sort of sewing machine type pedal stroke. And you can see that when they're, you know, they're pushing down, they're extending the hip and knee, the hamstrings are still fighting them a little bit. The knees are kind of out and, and maybe globally their function isn't great. And it's like, okay, I'm going to give you some tools. I've got a really extensive post-fit document. I send people it has got advice and resources and pathways on things like core and stretching and mobility and Kit Laughlin videos. There's a lot of really high quality free resources out there. Then there's a bunch of junk. So it's, we try to distill, bring order from the chaos of the internet and, and kind of give people a little bit of a pathway to start to explore it on themselves. But then when I have someone who lives in a location where I know I can recommend someone, then I'll do, I'll say... And this is a pretty common recommendation for me. I really want you to go hire a trainer, a physical trainer. Mm -hmm. You need to work on your off the bike global mm -hmm. function. We need you to do someone who does a targeted complete mm -hmm. physical assessment and looks at you and says, your lunge is complete crap. And this is essential because cycling yep. fundamentally is a static hip hinge and a series of lunges. Yep. And if you can't lunge and you can't hip hinge, then you're gonna have trouble riding a bike effectively. So we need to pick that apart. And when I have a referral in that city, I'll say, I want you to go work with this person. I've had amazing success with a couple Czech practitioners in Fort Collins, for example, that have brought my riders back mm -hmm. to a new level of function. And then what's interesting is in one particular case I'm thinking of, well, two actually, I went through about a dozen saddles with these riders and it was like varying degrees of crappiness. Like one was a train wreck and another was sitting on a fence post. Another was sitting on a Phillips head screwdriver. And then we got Ouch. to the point where it was like, okay, this is an uncomfortable board with a few knots in it, but it still sucks. And that was the best. That was after throwing yeah. all the resources I could at them. A year later, after working with this physical therapist slash trainer, increasing mobility, increasing core function and strength, uh, increasing the ability to uh, have more stable feet and ankles. Now, suddenly the saddle is a lot more comfortable. 
So core function, this is one way that I think a lot of people maybe aren't seeing the equation, but core function and proper mobility can improve the comfort of your saddle. Because if you're super tight, you can't move, you can't, or you're moving too much. And then you're just rubbing yourself on the saddle in all the wrong places. We can do every shape under the sun. We can use SMP mimic, you know, you know, fluffy seat cover, everything you can think of. And it doesn't matter. It's all going to suck because your pelvic control is terrible under load. If they're stuck, their hypermobility is a visual thing. They're not hypermobile in their SI joints. They're hyper, you're seeing them move a lot yep. because they're so stuck. Because they're stuck. So the yep. mobility ends up going else, yeah. elsewhere in the chain, right? Yep. One thing about spinal curvature. So you're riding down the road behind somebody. Oh my God, they're so crooked on their bike. I can fix that. Well, you might be able to and you might not be able to. Spinal curvature mm-hmm. is theirs. If they own it off the bike, then the bike needs to look like, you need to leave that spinal curvature alone. You need support if they're, if it if it's causing a downstream issue, you support it. I just had a spine. I'm about six days shy of a annual visit on my on my lumbar fusion, and I worked so hard early after my fusion on my core that I actually sit better on the bike now after fusion. My my teammates are going, "Man, you are so square and you are so fluid. I can't believe this. You're just you know four months post fusion. Look at you. It's because I worked so hard in those early days." On my on my core and my glutes, all the things that were important yep. before the fusion, right? But right. I'd rather ride my bike. You just keep getting faster, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the bottom yeah. line. But I mean, <laughs> so you, that that physical valve, that that interview, and I think spinal curvature is something you got to be really careful about wanting to fix, especially if they brought it to the bike. From and off the I bike. would say I would add to that pile leg length discrepancy. If you have a osseous structural leg length discrepancy, sure. okay. Someone comes to you, they're a 22-year-old cyclist, they've been riding their bike for five years. And they've got however many, whatever, 600 hours a year of bike riding. So however many hours that is, right? And they're like, yeah, my back hurts, you know, and and I went and got a scanogram and now we know for sure it's eight yep. millimeters femoral leg length discrepancy. Yep. Okay, femur is the hardest one to deal with. All right, so we got some problems because the lever changes in space. Yeah, yeah. So how do you shim it? How do you do this? Do you do that? But we have to remember this person, this uh, man or woman who comes in with his leg length discrepancy, that's actual bone length, not functional. They've been walking on the planet earth for already, you know, 17 years before they started riding a bike. And so their body's already very well compensated for that femur, assuming it didn't happen in a motorcycle crash or whatever, assuming it was from congenital. And so then we put them on a bike and now they've got back pain. Now you've got this equation that goes back to what you were saying, Todd, about did, does the pain come off the bike or does it only come on the bike? So you have to be very discerning and decide. And then again, it goes to what you were just saying, Andy, like be cautious about trying to fix that. Yep. Because if the person, if you try to add all these shims and wedges and stacks and goofball stuff on the bike that may re- offer some relief, but now off the bike, are you going to put a shim under their short heel in all their walking shoes? Sometimes, Sometimes. Mm-hmm. is the client, is the patient going to be compliant with that? Well, what if they're a sneakerhead and they own 50 pairs of shoes or, you know, it's a woman who wears high heels sometimes. Like it gets really complicated really quickly because now you have to question whether this intervention is going to happen in their daily life. And then sometimes you can, you can fix them on the bike and have their hips look a little more square. And then you open this can of worms because they've got such mm-hmm. a strong compensation pattern from so many years of dealing with gravity. Unless you're an astronaut or a scuba diver, <laughs> gravity is just relentless. It's always wins, man. The, so the caveat to that, though, is, is that the world out there is a lot of uneven ground. 
Yeah. So it's easier to compensate when we fix them to a bike. So I, I agree with what you're saying, mm-hmm. but there's one caveat to mm-hmm. that, and that's that on uneven ground, that leg, that eight millimeter leg length inequality has probably been inconsequential. But maybe, on a bike, not, because it's bike, fixed. we're suddenly fixed. Correct. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Totally agreed. So yeah. then it, that's why it can magnify the problem sometimes yep. because now you're, it yeah, twists right. your pelvis into this permanent torsion yep. and these patterns. Right. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. Here's, here's a conversation I have lost count of as a coach the number of times I've had it where one of my athletes goes for a bike fit and afterwards I asked them how it, go, it went and they went, oh, well, there's this thing that really surprised me. And whenever I hear that, I instantly interrupt them and go, you have a leg length discrepancy. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, how do you know? Do you and know? I'm like, I'm waiting for an athlete to tell me they don't have a leg length discrepancy. <laughs> but the key, what Colby said, is it functional? Did they acquire it through sure. some yeah. kind of pelvic asymmetry mm-hmm. um, or an arch? flattened yep. Yep. Uh, there's so many different ways you know right. but but yeah bike, or is yeah, it structural yeah, yeah. young inexperienced bike fitters love to find like oh look there i got this <laughs> Voila, let's fix, fix it yeah let's fix it and like i said you have to be careful so when my back is out it pulls my left hip up so it will look like i have a big leg length discrepancy when my back is bugging me if you start shimming that that's an issue it's address the back but uh, technology, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't a great way to use technology to find these asymmetries and the effect of your shim. If you decide to shim for a leg length inequality, d- d- you can find it in the technology. Did 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 this make a positive change or no change at all? Did they just protect that knee extension? Yeah, it yeah, it's a great way to measure the immediate response and then the adapted later to see what changed. You can see it with your eye sometimes if it's big, but it it helps to have some markers on the body and record it down to the millimeter too. It's tough to find those small changes with a goniometer. Yeah. 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 So this leads us to one of the next questions we want to ask, and this might be a bit of a uh, contentious point, but technology versus eyeball. How much does the technology, all the big cameras and all the gear help versus still is just an experienced fitter who's given it a good look. I'm going to give a, a, a medical uh, example. So you've got a young physician just out of school and he's got an orthopedic issue uh, in front of him and he didn't take an orthopedic residency, right? Or didn't do a fellowship. So what's he going to do? He's going to order an MRI. He doesn't, doesn't have really good evaluative skills for the knee, so he's going to order an MRI. And he's going to be reliant on what that MRI says. MRI see everything. So whether or not you find the pain generator on that MRI or not, but he's going to rely on that MRI. The inexperienced bike fitter is going to rely heavily on the technology to do the fit or to help guide the fit. Myself, Golby, Todd, we're going to use technology to help the rider experience Maybe help show that here's what I see. Here's what I see. And you can see it numerically. So the experienced orthopedist doesn't need the MRI. He knows that guy's got a torn meniscus. He uses the MRI to educate the patient. Here's why we need to do X, Y, or Z. This confirms my clinical exam. So you can use technology as an understudy and you can use technology as the master of all things. So technology has a role for sure. That's that's. I'll I'll set the plate for these two. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add in. It's like I I do believe the answer is not always in the computer, it, and you do have to have a good eyeball. There is no 
um, getting around that as a fitter because a lot of times the answer is not in the computer. However, it does help. And I had a fit last week at the team camp where a rider came in. It was from another team, but he was already on a specialized bike. Um, so thought he didn't really need a fit, but it's like, yeah, let's go in anyway. Got up, started pedaling. And right away, it's like pulling up his old files. The retool didn't recognize him because his ankling pattern was totally different than what we had recorded the four prior years. So I showed him, I'm like, what is going on here? Why is your ankle, why are you driving your heels so hard all of a sudden? And then we measured his saddle height and it was 11 millimeters too low. And he was about to get sent home with that bike to go start training. So you just caught it? Just yeah. caught it real quick with the technology. Mm -hmm. And the retool just didn't recognize that guy as himself. Hmm. So it, it caught it. And this rider, he I don't even think he owns a tape measure, so he would have never caught it. <laughs> right? It's like he, yeah. once he got that bike home, he was gonna start training. Um, Who knows? It could have slipped more and more too over time. That's right? right. So it's just like so that's where I think technology helps. That's a great example. But for me, um it just helped like Andy said, it helps support what I see and then I can have a, a dialogue with the rider about it. Sometimes it shows me things I can't see because it does record things so quickly and the eyeball's not quite as fast. It's around this time of year that many cyclists and endurance athletes enjoy a brief off season. Recovery is important to recharge your body and your mind for next season's preparation. Recovery from individual workouts is critical too. So, we are pleased to announce the new Recovery Pathway from Fast Talk Laboratories. Our new Recovery Pathway explores the best methods to recover from workouts, how to track and analyze recovery, and the consequences of not recovering enough. We tap world-leading experts like Dr. Shona Halson, Dr. Steven Seiler, Sage Roundtree, Dr. Andy Pruitt, and many more. About a third of our Recovery Pathway is free through our free listener membership, Optimize your recovery now. See our recovery pathway at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. So, so Colby, before you answer this question, what would you say you use for technology in your bike fit process? My method is similar to what Andy just described. I use technology to help the rider see what I see. But you do not use retool. I don't use retool. Or so the difference in my method is basically what I use is an iPad. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've got my trainer set up in a way so that visually I have cues. So there's a mirror and it's got lines in it, right? And everything is parallel. Mm -hmm. And so I can show riders these reference lines. So when I film them from the posterior view, then I'm referencing the lines. And then I, it's the simplest thing. I just say, look, I just want to take this video so I can show you what I see. And then we can talk about potential for change. And then I just drop a ruler straight down the center of the iPad and it's got the, all the, the marks. And then I say, see how your head is moving from center to right, center to right. Or this knee is tracking. See how this knee at the bottom, I'll freeze it. Yeah. See how this knee at the bottom of the stroke, your thigh is hitting the top tube on the left, but on the right, it's six centimeters from the top tube at the bottom of the stroke. This, and then now we can see that reflected in your pelvic position. I'm not, I don't need the numerical quantification, the angles. To be honest, I don't care what the numbers are. And maybe that's naive of me, but in my experience, that's what that's just where I'm at. What I care about is the pattern I see in the rider. And I'm looking at the fluidity. I'm looking for the suplex. I'm looking for what one of my instructors would call an attractor state. 
That is when you get the saddle offset in the right place, you get the saddle height in the right place, you get the angle right, the bars right, then there's, it's almost like you can look at the rider. This is going to sound really obtuse and pretty contrarian, but you can look at the rider almost with a soft eyeball focus and see fluidity and see balance. Now, there's a lot of subjective interpretation to that. Yep. And I recognize that. Um, one of the best Cat 3 memes ever was Bike Fitter uses random number generator to produce saddle height, <laughs> right? <laughs> I love that one. So, so some people are probably going, how the hell does this guy know what he's talking about? I, I don't have an answer for that. How like, many bike fits have you done? How many bike fits have I done? Not anywhere near as as many as these guys have. But, I've been doing it for about but, 10 years. Yeah. So I'm hitting some sort of 10,000 hour rule maybe, but maybe not even because I've been splitting, you know, full two, two full time jobs are never enough. Let's go for three. <laughs> Let's be a coach and a fitter and a bike pod and a podcaster, bike podcaster. Bike podcaster. And do other things too. So, okay. All that aside, like what I'm doing is I'm using my, this gets even more esoteric, but I've been in the sport for 35 years and I've looked at a lot of cyclists. I've studied a lot of bodies. So it's as simple as when it looks right, it is. It's almost like a pornography discussion. Like I can't quite <laughs> tell you what the definition is, but I know it when I see it. There's a little sure. bit of that involved because you see a cyclist who has that fluid motion on the bike. And then and, and then when you're really listening, you're listening to cues, you're listening to the sound of the trainer. What does that tell you? It tells you how punchy the stroke is versus how smooth it is and how fluid it is. Smoother's not always better. Um, I also use a Saris MP1. So this is the technology question. So that's a platform. It's a wooden platform and the trainer's fixed to it, but the platform moves fore and aft and it also wiggles side to side. You can just by the tiny movements you can see in that trainer, even whether it's statically cocked to one side or the other, it tells you a lot about weight distribution on the bike, pedal strokes, um, smoothness, right? And when you ask the rider to do some efforts, you see how that changes. How is the trainer moving back and forth? Is it is it pulsing on every pedal stroke, on every downstroke? You know the rider's really lopsided. And there's a good chance their saddle's maybe too high and maybe they're quad dominant. And we need to have a discussion about, you know, driving through the stroke a little more smoothly without coaching them to pull up at nine o'clock, which I do not do. That's a no-no in my book. Italian Wives Tales, number 64, yep. <laughs> pull up at nine o'clock. Clipless pedals are for pulling up. That's only true out of the saddle and sprinting. So, so what you're describing is Colby Pierce's database that lives inside his head. Well, but he's using but, technology, but, but, but sure. I yeah. didn't finish. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, I mean, you're pulling in data of your, of, from historical knowledge and experience, you're pulling in, um, data from your understanding of the human body. You're pulling in data from the sounds and the sights that you're seeing right in front of you in that session. You're pulling in data from the rider themselves, et cetera. And, and it, you take all of that and do something with it yes. based on experience. Put it through my human computer. <laughs> exactly. But, so, then, but the, what I love to hear though is that you're using technology. You're using different technology. I mean, uh, we had several physical therapists at the center that used used different iPad uh, technologies to do their bike fits or running gait analysis. And so you're looking at the exact same things that Todd's looking at with his technology and the sing, the song that the trainer sings, we all listen to. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, the, I think the, the sweeter that sound is, the, the suppleness is occurring. Mm -hmm. I think those, uh, I, I like the, the moving platform, although it would screw with Todd's technology. It, it would. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's just math. Some guy could figure that out. Right? Yeah. You uh, could. Yeah. 
could put it all you could easily on, take put a reference on frame on the bike you bet yeah yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. there's ways to do that for me it just makes the cyclist more organic i mean we all know y'all we've all heard the story about how people get on a train and like why is my threshold so much lower why are your intervals so much harder indoors well there's a lot of reasons for that yep. but one of the ones is that the trainer's locked in place yep. and also i'm sure you guys will agree like covid was just a a like it was feast or famine in terms of professional life for most businesses and for bike fitting, it was feast. It was feast because everybody started riding Zwift and then uh, a trainer is a, is a physical challenge magnifier. We'll call it yep. like if you had an old niggly knee for the last six years, that was yep. kind of in and out every spring in the year of COVID it went through the roof and suddenly yep. you were emailing me, Hey man, I can't deal with this knee problem. So trainers, because they lock everybody in place, they magnify all our bad habits, our poor yep. postural habits. And because you're not in a group, you never see your shadow. There's no consider for consideration for aerodynamics or suplex or accelerations. There's no stochastic, less a much less stochastic nature to the power production. It encourages people to sit in one place and grind, grind, grind. Then all the little hip asymmetries, all the poor knee tracking patterns, all the bad postural habits just go. That's an upward motion of magnification. Two points. One, as a coach, I have coached a few folks along the way. Anyway, uh, I like the trainer for prescriptive workouts. Oh, it's easy to control load very precisely. So, that, that, yeah. so it does have yeah, a role. Agreed. Um, but back to technologies, whether it be what you're using, what retool, regardless, for the listeners out there, so the three of us are not accessible to the entire world. Right. Mm. Nor are our offsprings, right? We, we all have them. We all have disciples that we've trained and have moved on. I think that technology, along with the full exam, is really an important piece for that um, for that customer out there looking for a bike fit. Back to that that guy that went to the three the three day class. We we have produced thousands of those over the years. The technology that helps bring them to a higher level quicker because mm -hmm. they've got the database to rely on. I think I think that for me that's an important piece. Well, um, could you could you Todd could you describe that da database for people that don't know what you're doing with all that information that Retool right. has gathered over the years? Right. So it starts with with accurate technology, and the good thing about it is with motion capture tech, the stuff we use is millimeter accurate, and it's immediately archived. Mm -hmm. Colby archives things in his brain because he's super smart. But it's <laughs> we like, all archive things in our brains. <laughs> but it's like for the computer to archive it right away is super powerful, and then the and then it's also analyzable later. So when we now have twenty, thirty thousand fits in the system, we can um, easily go through and analyze for certain trends, and we start to see things over the years. Like we started off this podcast with what's changed since the early days of bike fit well bodies on the bike are different now and we're seeing like pro riders are riding further forward than mm -hmm. they used to knee over spindle right had multiple conversations about this yeah. Like, yeah and you're starting yeah. to see more straight clamp seat posts and so it's like and that's the power of the data and when a fitter has a data system they have access to that Some, well, how do they how do they sometimes. use it yeah how do you use it as a bike fitter how does that yep. person that's yep. only taken the three-day course tap into the right. power of Yep. This so data? you start with um, working with what's called normative ranges. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, mount, a trail mountain biker, right, you ride a stump jumper or some sort of trail bike, we have ranges of what's normal for each joint angle. 
in each alignment position on the bike. So you start there. But we all know that normative ranges, by definition, is just the middle of the bell-shaped curve. What about the ends, right? So that's where as you develop more of your skills as a fitter, you start to be able to work outside of the normative ranges and really personalize something for each rider. So you take what you gather from the assessment, you take what you gather from the interview, and you work within the normative ranges, but then you can actually narrow it down further than that, the more practice that you get. So that's that's the process of if you start from zero it, um, with our technology is um, you start small and you build. So one of the hits that Retool took early on was that, that your normative values were really based on the Pro Tour. Um, and, and they were. Yeah, and they were. <laughs> that's because that's, that's where you were doing most of the hits, right? Because yeah, they yeah. were. But there, how, how yeah. has that changed in the last 10 years? Yeah, obviously there's a lot more other riders in the database now. But I do think that was the right place to start because if you're going to start with normative ranges, for me, it's better to start with the best riders in the world. Like, because cycling, it's like how your bike is set up will define how you move on that bike. If your saddle's super high, you're going to point your toes, right? If your saddle's super low, you're going to drive your heels. Um, so to start with the, so you can't really get normative data on cyclists because it depends on how that bike went out the shop. That's how you'll move. It's different in running. You can put someone on a treadmill and just watch how they run. There's no machine under them. There's no rig. So... The normative data in running is different than in cycling. So we chose to start with the best riders in the world um, and study how they ride and then trickle things down. I think, Todd, you and I have discussed this before, but I think, as you said, as you guys were saying, like when the, when the new fitter starts out, they can use these normative, rate, these normative data to help them guide decisions, yeah. right? And I think that's really tempting to want to do, but I don't think that's the best methodology for a couple of reasons. One is that we can see clearly that normative data actually doesn't have a lot of relevance. And I'm going to read a quick bit from this paper, and I'd love to drop it in the show notes if you guys are cool. Sure. This is a really cool article on some random Did website. Did you write it? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. So this is an article that talks about, um, the title is, When the U.S. Air Force Discovered the Flaw of Averages, right? It was published in 2016, but it references that in the uh, late 1940s, the U.S. Air Force had this problem because they kept crashing airplanes, not in combat, but in training. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they started to dig into the cockpit dimensions to try to figure out. They looked at all the other problems. They looked at the engineering of the aircraft and the fuel lines and all that stuff and eliminated it. Finally came down to the last thing we can think of is that the cockpits aren't made right for our pilots. So they decided they were going to solve the problem. So they measured a whole giant pile of pilots and then gathered the data. So here, I'll just read this part a little bit out of context, but you'll get it. Using the size data he had gathered from 4,063 pilots, this guy Daniels calculated the average of the 10 physical dimensions he believed to be most relevant for design of the cockpit, including height, chest circumference, and sleep length. These form the dimensions of the average pilot, which Daniels generously defined as someone whose measurements were within the middle 30% of the range of values of said dimension. So that's a huge range of error. So, for example, even though the precise average height for the data was 5'9", he defined the height of the average pilot as ranging from 5'7 to 5'11". Next, Daniels compared each individual pilot one by one to this hypothetical mathematical average pilot. 
Before he crunched his numbers, the consensus among his fellow Air Force researchers was that the vast majority of the pilots would be within range on most dimensions. I mean, it's 4,000 pilots plus or minus 30% on 10 body dimensions, right? After all, these pilots had already been pre-selected because they appeared to be average size. If you were six foot seven, you would never be recruited to fly in the first place. So there's already a biased data group. The scientists also expected that a sizable number of pilots would be within range within average range on all 10 dimensions. But even Daniels, who was the doubter of this process, was stunned when he tabulated the actual number. Zero. Out of 4,063 pilots, not a single airman fit within the average range on all 10 dimensions. One pilot might have a longer than average arm length, but a shorter than average leg length, et cetera, et cetera. So the point being is that my point is that I don't believe orthodox data has that much value if you're using it big caveat, if you're using it to make your decision, if you're saying, okay, something doesn't look right about this guy's knee extension or his whatever dimension you want to pick, his torso angle. And then you reference the data and you go, oh, here's why. It's because he's out of the normative range. To me, that doesn't mean anything because that athlete may be well far, well in a way out of that range for a good reason. We have to use a more discerning eye and look from a, my, I might, I, my method would be to look from a soft focus and interpret all the data and look holistically and say, What's going on? Why does this person not look right when I put their saddle up to where their knee extension is within the normal range? But the but the immature fitter doesn't cannot doesn't have a do reference. that. Yeah. And my goal. So right. when I started consulting with Specialized twenty years ago, one of the goals that I had was to. I was the busiest bike fitter anywhere, and I could either sit in my studio and see. 20 patients a day, two of them bike fit. You had to scale. You had to find right. a way. Right. I had to yeah. find a way yeah. to make that accessible to more people globally. Mm -hmm. And the answer was a combination of technology and schooling. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are some immature fitters out there that I wish had never been given a certificate. Um, but the majority of them went out and either failed in the, and didn't become fitters or have matured. Right. And in those early days, I think the technology really is helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, your example is of 10 different body measurements. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how many lines of data we have, 45 or something. Yeah. So the, the, but we actually shrink it down for the immature fitter to 10, right? Mm -hmm. Or something like that. Maybe it's eight. The, that's where the physical evaluation comes in. And that we spend more time. As much time, if not more, on the physical evaluation than we do to learning how to use the technology. Mm -hmm. So it's a marriage between those two to try to find, let Timmy in the bike shop mm -hmm. not hurt anybody and do some good early days before he matures. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm not going to quit teaching classes. I'm not going to, right? I'm not going to quit trying to educate that new fitter uh, or I'm not going to quit trying to develop more technology. And I would just add on from, from the pro data side, I think it is a myth in the world that retool fits to the average, but we are not fitting to the average saddle height. And if we did, all most of the measurements for people on that bike size would be out. So we're fitting people to like a saddle height within like a two or three millimeter range, right? So it is a personalized approach. We use normative kinematic, kinematic data to get there, but you're exactly right, Colby. If we put Everyone on a medium epic at a 740 saddle height, very few riders would be correct there. But that is not what we do. 
Uh, we have saddle height ranges on medium epics from 720 to 760. And then we use the normative body data to get there because it trans transgresses between different body sizes when you use angles. Let's talk about a different technology for a second. Mm -hmm. Pressure. Handlebar, footbeds, saddles. Pressure mapping on saddles, yeah. I'm mm -hmm. a big, big fan of pressure mapping and saddles. Uh, what we learned from it, sure, drove saddle design. Um, I wouldn't do a fit without without a pressure map. Um, it helps me choose a saddle. It also is great for patient education. They say I hurt. A woman may not want to tell me exactly where she hurts. Yeah. But then she sees it up on the screen. Goes, That's it. Points right? at it. Points at it. Right. But points at Don't it. name that part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But whatever. So mm -hmm. it, it can be used and showing new balance once the. Um, once the uh, fit has progressed, here's how your saddle pressures have changed. So I'm I'm a big believer. And the handlebar and the footbeds are a little, um, they're not quite as distinct as the saddle. But I'm a but I am a big believer. Now, does it, should that rule out a fitter if they don't have saddle pressure mapping? No, that should not rule out a fitter if you're out there looking for a fitter. But it should be one of those things that. You know, if they've got it and have used it for a while, that may be a go-to place if they do have it, but it would not be a reason not to go if they don't have it. So let's move on to a final question here. And this is one that I know has been debated in bike fits, which is the question of aerodynamics versus power. You know, sacrificing the one for the other. And I have met fitters who believe that basically you slam the handlebars down as far as you can. You get as aero as possible. And that's going to make you super fast. I have met other people who do fits who say that, no, it's okay to sacrifice a little bit of the aerodynamics. We need to maximize your ability to put out power on the bike. So what is the feeling here? Is this still a relevant question or is this getting outdated? There are people that believe that, let's talk about time trial bikes for sure. And they say that if you can hold the same power on your TT bike than you can on your road bike, you're not aggressive enough. You're not aero enough. So there's probably some truth to that because we do see um, metabolic power decrease in most time trial bikes in the optimal aero position. But we balance that with the aero gains. So I think the best way to do a fit is to take both um, data points into consideration and the watts that you lose metabolically and the watts that you gain aerodynamically and come out with the fastest position. That's a, that's a lengthy process. It is. That is a lengthy <laughs> process. Well, and it assumes that the fitter has aero data, which not a lot of fitters do. Yeah. And that's really complicated. Yeah. Like does a rider go to a wind tunnel and then present to a fitter with a bunch of testing data and say, these yeah. are the trends yeah. here. So now what right? we're actually, or you can use it. Yeah. The handlebar units. There's the no, no TO. There is? are some infield devices yeah. which are a little tricky. The metabolic and the aero side is a little tricky once you right. get out of a velodrome or a wind tunnel right. or away from a true metabolic cart. Mm -hmm. But what we found is there's a relationship between what a rider's lowest achievable hip angle is and what their flexibility pattern is. Mm -hmm. So we now actually have things in the retool system that can help a fitter that doesn't have a wind tunnel or doesn't have a metabolic cart to do a physical assessment figure out how tight someone is and arrive at an optimal hip angle that they can ride that's going to optimize them. So for me, that question comes down to like the, the part we have to consider is, is the future. We have to look in our fitter crystal ball and look at adaptation. <laughs> Good luck. Because 
you know, you got a rider who comes in, they're very fast twitch. They're like, a, I, I, one of the questions I ask in my pre-fit um, assessment is, you know, what's your, what's your own self-assessed global flexibility level? One is a brick, 10 is Gumby. And I get answers all over the map. Someone comes in, they tell you they're a three or a two, which I rarely get that much honesty. Usually they say a four and they're like a two. And you guys say, okay, how much stretching are you doing? You're like, oh, I went through that a few years ago and nothing happened. Okay, cool. So probably not a big rate of change there. And then you do your assessment. You're looking at their, their ability to hinge at the hip and lunge. And it's like, ooh, this person's got some challenges. Or maybe it's just their body type, right? A really boxy individual with a real um, robust rib cage and a lot of musculature on the thigh. You're just not going to get a lot of hip flexion out of them because they're going to mechanically run into themselves. Yep. Sometimes people have indulged a little too much beer or, you know, it's, it's almost turkey season. It's so the lunch muscle. The lunch muscle. So um, so we have those challenges, right? But we have to look at the ability of the rider to adapt to the program. So, you know, to go back to what you started off with, Chris, what I did when I was a junior is just slam that stem to oblivion and ride in it. And that kind of worked out for me because I'm very flexible. But also I'll make the point that we tend to glorify flexibility in endurance sports. And that is not flexibility is on a spectrum just like everything. A joint that's too mobile doesn't have a lot of control. So then when you gain force, when you make the muscle stronger that's around that joint and the joint can't control the force, then you end up with problems. You end up with stress on the joint. So there's some of both. But if you want to put someone in a really aggro position or aggressive position and their goal of their event is to win national time trial championships or go to Moriarty and set a record or do an hour record or whatever they're doing, then you have to really interpret how much change they can adapt to. And you put them in that narrow position and maybe you test their power and you say, all right, we're going to send you out the door like this and you're going to do this myofascial release and this foam rolling and this stretching every day. And you're going to make sure you're hydrated all the time because dehydrated tissues are tight and brittle and don't like to be bendy. And then we're going to have you training at a sustainable rate that allows progression. And so we're going to work with your coach on that and make sure you're not doing super neutron bomb threshold intervals out the blocks. And we're going to make things progressive. And then we're going to touch base in six weeks and see how things have adapted and changed. And if they, if that rider effects change, then they're a person who proves that they can adapt to that position. But that's probably the exception. Most people can make some change. There are a few who really aren't really changing. And then just like everything on the spectrum, there are a few who can mold themselves into almost any position, right? But because they can mold themselves into any position doesn't mean that's fast. I'll give you the Fabian Cancellara. You know, so Fabian comes in, he's Gumby. He's a Gumby. So the previous fitters all said, slam, slam him. Yeah. But the guy can't control himself. He's that that flexible. So we raised him four centimeters in the front. He was almost unbeatable in the world in time trials. And he's at the, at the Tour of Swiss and I'm watching it live on TV and I'm watching his hip rock like crazy. Yep. And I immediately, I, I probably called you or I called, and I said, he changed his position. Mm-hmm. And he, he had, somebody said, you're too high in the front end. So they dropped him back to his original position. It was the first time trial he'd lost in two years because they made him more arrow. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Quote, unquote, more arrow. Quote, yeah, unquote, yeah. more arrow. That's a great example. The other good world tour example of that is Rowan Dennis. You just search Rowan and look at images, Rowan Dennis time trial and search images. You'll see there are multiple photos where his torso angle is not that aggressive. It just really isn't. Mm. And you can see it from different angles and whatever, but also notice that when his torso angle, you can see different evolutions of his position. Um, Geraint Thomas is another really good example of who's had massive changes in his position over the years. But when you look at Rowan, when his torso angle is a little more conservative, you can see that he's exceptional at keeping his chin height low. 
And it's so easy for us to go. The low-hanging fruit, the red herring of position in aerodynamics is slamming the bars. But aerodynamics is about – it's a it's fluid dynamics is really complicated. Yeah. It's yeah. about how the wind seals yeah. itself off your butt. And it's about how much wind you block from coming in the yep. black hole between – on top of your hands, below your chin, and in between your shoulders. So that's the most – that's the, the frontal area perspective. And then it's how the wind seals after that. So if you want to be fast on a TT bike, the take home is – have an arrow butt, but it's, it's body shaping. It's body shaping. It's, it's a three dimensional shape. It's how that to, punches that hole in the wind. You gave a great example. Being able to drop that chin yeah. is way more important than dropping the front end of the bike. Matter of fact, the higher the front end of the bike, the easier it is to drop your well, chin. Well, so if you want to see a great example of that, flick through the pages of your local 20 KTT. Like we have one here in Colorado called Frostbite. Just go through pages. And when people drop the stem aggressively, so they hip hinge mm -hmm. very aggressively and then they pin their elbows together, and then they shrug their shoulders up to their ear. That's three. Then they're going to um, go as hard as they can, the fourth demand. So when you when you go hard, the muscle tension increases, and you increase tension on the global fascial load. And fascia travels tip to toe, yes. right, the entire way. So what we get are two common relief valves. One is the head periscopes straight up <laughs> vertically, and so their head, their helmet is now, you know, yep. 20 centimeters above the height of their back or 12 centimeters. And then the other one is the heel. They can no longer pedal with a flat heel and their heel pops up. And it's the two opposite ends of that yep. fascial chain are like yep. relief valves. Yep. When you put too much global stress on that chain that goes all the way from the toes to the top of your head. So and the trainer doesn't sing. <laughs> right. Right. Trainer, yeah. Cause it's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, one last story. When I was first hired to go to work with Bjarne Reese. Uh, we arrive at team camp. Uh, they're not experienced at this, at having fitters come in. We arrive at team camp and we drive in and every bike is, they're getting ready to go for a train ride and every bike is leaning up against the team bus. Every stem is sitting on top of the head tube. Every st every fork Slime had already up. been cut off before the fitters arrived. <laughs> and and uh, Bjarna had... Work he, with this. Bjarna was responsible for all his riders' positions. So, yes, he invited me to come, but... I knew what he had for breakfast because he was over my shoulder all day, every day. And Making one sure of, you didn't raise any stems. Well, which you couldn't anyway. I, but I, we we replaced a lot of forks that camp. Oh. <laughs> we replaced a lot of forks that camp. We're calling back and we need ten more. So he would be right over my shoulder, breathing on me. And I said, I'm going to raise this guy too. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. So we basically at that time it wasn't three dimensional. It was. Um, BG data. It was a video capture and we yeah. could trace the front end. So we actually showed him the way I could actually lower the frontal area by mm. raising the front of the bike. Mm. It was so dramatic. He said, he patted me on the back and said, Andy, I'll see you tomorrow and left. And we never bothered me again. Yeah. Nice. So you got to convince, yeah. right? It's that, yeah, so yeah. using technology to, wasn't convincing the rider because he goes, my God, I'm so much more comfortable. Mm. Um, it was convincing Bjarna. So similar and story. And we've remained friends since that day. My six-day mechanic, Jorg Wolben, who worked for Garmin for many years, he told me a story about how in the old days they used to do team camp and similar idea. The, when the bikes were built, they would put all the handlebars at the same height, yes. regardless of the size of the bike. Yep. doesn't matter if it's a 61 yep. or a 48, yep. so that it looked good for the photos. Oh, of course. It's true. For the yeah. team it's photos, true. so we could line all the bikes up. <laughs> it's true. That, that was, they <laughs> had just taken on. the photo yep. when I arrived. That's exactly right. <laughs> but it's, one more thing on aerodynamics is, and we're all talking about it, but I think it'll drive the point home, is the body is a big 3D shape, but you can break it apart into, <laughs> into simple shapes. So when you're on a TT bike, there's – 
you have a, an airfoil, which is your torso, right? It's it's a big surface area, but a great shape. So you can play with that a little bit to help improve the pore shapes on your body, which is a sphere, which is your head, mm-hmm. and cylinders, which is your legs and your arms. So you, what we've learned over the years is by bringing people's torso up a little bit, it doesn't change the aerodynamics so much because it's such a great shape, but they can drop their head and get rid yep. of the sphere. Yeah. Right. So it's like when you look at it that way, that's why when you put people in the tunnel and you raise them, you don't even really have to tell them to drop their head. They just do it they naturally do it. and they get their, their CDA goes down yeah. and their, their metabolic power goes up. Okay, so as we're looking to close out here, I have two questions, really get into the practical side. You have somebody who wants to get into bike fitting. How do they get trained? What would you recommend? Well, there is no universal school, uh, sadly. Um, Retool and its education process really belongs to the sphere of specialized bicycle company. I know uh, Colby was trained in Australia, uh, a very intense month-long training, which is not available to everybody. Um, That's by Steve Hogg. Yep. That I mentioned at the uh, start of the show. Uh, But he's not available to everybody. He does 10 a year. What's he do? Oh, less than that. Less less than that. So so his disciples are are, are few, but but well-trained in his philosophy. Um, I still think that our three-day classes are the best in the world for, for the bell-shaped curve of young fitters. Um, there is the internet, there's the the thing in London, um, a cycle, cycle fit, cycle fit mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. they do have an educational arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think those guys, uh, there are a couple of physical therapists, they do a pretty good job. So, it, man. It, is a mentor the way, is that? Well, you're not going to get better if you don't have a mentor, mm-hmm. regardless. You're not going to get better if you don't have a mentor. I would say, you know, a good uh, benefit of technology is online education is getting a little bit better now, <laughs> but it doesn't replace the workshop that I think will really accelerate your fit skills. So there are certain fitters in the world that offer workshops that are a week long or two weeks long, and you can go in, and once you have the technology and you've taken an online course, you can go in and actually practice with Great. it with a mentor. So there are a lot of fitters now starting to do that. If you're trying Sorry. to find a fitter, there's the IBFI. I was trying to remember what the acronym yeah. was. The International yeah. Bike Fit yeah. Institute. Yeah. yeah. My problem with that one is, is that, so when we started body geometry, that thing quickly, they said, we we're going to be left behind if we don't, you know, we don't get all the independent, non-specialized bike fitters in a group. Uh, they do, they're more marketing than they are substance. And I may be wrong. But, but so I was approached when, as soon as I retired from specialized, I was approached by them. Would you come teach for us? Um, and maybe I should have, I, I couldn't because of the non-compete at the time, but, um, I don't know. So yes, it is out there and it is a, it is a fitter, uh, finding resource. Yeah. Um, you can look up the accreditations, the fitter, yep, et cetera. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. So that brings me to my second question, which is, I'm sure many of our listeners are now interested in getting a bike fit. Some or, of they're, might or they're well just totally scared. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them might be interested in flying out here and, and getting fit by one of the three of you. But for those who don't want to be fly, don't want to fly out here, how do they find a good fitter in their area? Ride your bike to Colorado. Ooh. <laughs> bike pack to Colorado to see Todd and or Colby. 
I think word of mouth is a great way. And I, I think I agree with Colby, ride your bike and get into the crew. Start asking around who are the good fitters around. Um, you can also go to, uh, if you're looking for a retool and a, and a retool fit, you can go to retool.com and find a fitter near you. But I would still get a word of mouth type referral from uh, people in the community. Yeah. The, um, whenever I have refer a client out to a PT, a strength and conditioning specialist, and they need that person, I tell them, go to your local gym, ask around, word of mouth, and hire the best person you can. Go straight to the top. The problem with that advice is it's good for that individual person because you know it's, it, you can hire a newbie at $80 an hour and do 10 hours of training, or you can hire someone who's been doing it for 20 years and pay them the same amount of money for three hours worth of work, and you'll get way better results most of the time because they just have that eye and experience to look at the human body. The problem with that advice is that the $80 an hour person never gets any work, <laughs> but the onus is on them to find a, a proper mentor and shadow that person who's making 300 an hour, right? But the same rule would apply to bike fitting. Ask around, go straight to the top, ideally, um, and find the most experienced best fitter you can. Uh, Todd, you are the new person on the uh, in the studio today. These guys, Andy and uh, Colby, they know what comes next. So I'm going to start with them. But it's the we Good. give one minute take homes. You get 60 seconds now to encapsulate the last two hours of this discussion. Uh, I'll start with Colby. Be methodical. Keep records. Don't get lost. Right. Meaning, don't do a bike fit two years ago and then move 19 things and change your cleats, your saddle, and then show up. You know, and then wonder why your back hurts. Being a being an a student of the sport and being um, on top of your business means organizing your bike fit in a way so that you're responsible for that data. You should own a tape measure, by the way. You should know your own saddle height, by the way. But then also going to visit your bike fit with some regular frequency that makes sense. Maybe that's annual. Maybe it's more if you have a life-changing event. And look after it. That's the best way to stay on top of things because like we talked about, the human body is constantly evolving. So don't assume that you've got this archetypal perfect fit that is preserved in stone or alabaster and that's it. And we never touch anything ever again. That's not really the way things work. Andy? You know, Colby mentioned early on um, that COVID has been a you know a boom for bike fitting. And, and there's a couple of key comments that people will make is that I only ride my bike never more than an hour, which tells you that they're really uncomfortable and an hour is their tolerance. Um, there's the woman who says I only ride twice a week because she needs to heal between rides. So there's a lot of bikes hanging in garages that are perfectly usable, but they got hung up because of saddle pain or hand pain. And, and those are solvable problems. So I, and COVID drugged a lot of those bikes out of the garage um, to be fit. So if you're having issues on your bike, if you can only ride once or twice a week because you need to heal between, if you, if you can only ride an hour because you're uncomfortable, seek some help. Cycling is a lifelong sport. I'm 71 and going faster than I did 10 years ago. Cycling is a lifelong sport as a commuter, as a, I mean, we didn't get to talk about e-bikes or commuting bikes today, but all of those things have purpose and need to be, need to be balanced with fit. Todd. I guess in wrapping up, I would say as complicated as we've made it sound, there's some simple things that you can do at home. So if you are one of those new COVID riders, there's three things. COVID riders. COVID riders. <laughs> there's three things I believe in that tend to work is like learn how to set your cleat. Or if you don't have a cleat, put your foot on the ball, put your foot on the pedal in the right way. 
So center the pedal spindle on the ball of your foot. You can look online. There's easy ways to do that. Another thing that tends to work is sit up on your saddle and drop both feet straight down and scrape your heel on the bottom of the pedal or on the pedal at the bottom of the pedal stroke. That's going to get you in the ballpark. The other thing, once you get that set, is to look at where your grip is and make it at least level with your saddle, if not up to like five to eight centimeters of drop. Start there. So there's things you can do at home uh, to get you in the ballpark. For your one minute for the global conversation we've just had, what is your most important take home? A good bike fit is a blend of um, art and science. So if you're going to measure something, measure it the proper way. And that's with technology. We all know if you're measuring something, you have an um, observational bias. You want it to, to read a certain number that you think it should read. Technology takes you out of the equation. So if you want to measure something, measure it right, measure it with technology. But also appreciate the art of bike fit and um, don't close your eyes. You have to actually look at the rider. Very good. Thanks, guys. Been a pleasure. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Andy Pruitt, Colby Pierce, Todd Carver, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.